sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. Rethreaded offers hope and a fresh start to survivors of human trafficking right here in Jacksonville. None of us should be defined by the worst things that happen to us. Learn more about how you can unlock the potential of survivors at Rethreaded.com. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a practicing neurologist and professor of healthcare science. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, Baptist MD Anderson surgical oncologist Neeraj Gusani joins us to talk about the latest in pancreatic cancer for Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. Then. Mayo Clinic psychiatrist Christian Lochner joins us to talk about Alzheimer's disease for Alzheimer's Awareness Month. But first, do you remember this song? If you're of a certain age, I'd expect you to guess the theme from Shaft almost instantaneously. It was one of those shows with an iconic theme song that defined a generation. The lead, played by Richard Roundtree, was cool and someone you just didn't mess with. And sadly, he died from pancreatic cancer recently, one of the conditions we highlight in this show. On the show today, we have a November double feature that tugs at the heartstrings of health awareness. In the cosmic symphony of existence, we explore two seemingly disparate conditions, the silent nemesis, pancreatic cancer, and the enigmatic labyrinth of Alzheimer's disease. Both conditions share November for their awareness month. Our goal here is to remind us of the resilient stories that define the human spirit in the face of adversity and shed light on these intricate battles for health and understanding. We start with pancreatic cancer, a disease that affects far too many lives each year. Pancreatic cancer is often referred to as a silent killer, stealthily emerging with few noticeable symptoms until it reaches advanced stages. But this month, we're determined to break that silence and shed light on this formidable adversary. Joining us today is a true hero in the fight against pancreatic cancer, Dr. Reen Neeraj Gusani, a surgical oncologist whose expertise and compassion have made a significant impact in the lives of countless patients. We'll explore the latest advancements in pancreatic cancer healthcare and treatment gain insights into early detection, and discuss the critical importance of raising awareness about this disease. Joining us today is Dr. Neeraj Gusani. He is Chief of Surgical Oncology at Baptist MD Anderson Cancer Center here in Jacksonville. Dr. Gusani, welcome back to our show. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Servin. Well, let's start with the basics. Remind us all... What is pancreatic cancer, or maybe just start off, what is the pancreas, and then tell us about pancreatic cancer? Yeah, I'll, I'll start. Uh, you mentioned uh, how common this disease is, and, and so 63,000 Americans uh, will be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer uh, this year, wow. and unfortunately, the numbers are rising. Pancreatic cancer is 
also one of the more deadly cancers. And so it's the third leading cause of cancer death. As you mentioned, numerous celebrities uh, have succumbed to this disease, uh, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Patrick Swayze and countless others. So it is critically important that we we explore this and we learn more about it. The pancreas is a little known organ. It's in the back of the abdomen. Uh, it is hidden behind a lot of other uh, you know uh, organs, the stomach, the intestines, et cetera. And that's part of the reason why pancreatic cancer is hard to diagnose and treat because uh, because of the way the pancreas sits in the back of the abdomen. The pancreas does two major things. It produces insulin and other hormones that help us with our sugar control, right. and it produces digestive enzymes that help us uh, to metabolize fats and, and to uh, absorb nutrients. And so these two critical roles uh, are part of the nature of pancreatic cancer. When one of the two functions goes bad, the cells go bad and can grow out of control and become a cancer, an abnormal growth of cells that can grow and spread. The more common type of cancer, and the one we'll focus on today, is adenocarcinoma or a gland cancer of the right. duct cells that we talked about that make the enzymes. So you mentioned this because you said it's kind of a hidden organ. Is that the primary reason why it's so deadly or challenging to diagnose and or treat? Exactly right. Uh, the key is that symptoms of pancreatic cancer often appear late and often can be very common symptoms of other more common ailments. So people can get abdominal pain and bloating, uh, weight loss, and so on, uh, that uh, can be from a thousand other reasons, you know, which are more common than pancreatic cancer, such as indigestion or heartburn or whatever. But a persistent set of symptoms like that should sort of raise a, raise a doubt and, and uh, allow us to, to think about what else might be going on. Um, so that's exactly uh, right. The other problem here, um, Dr. Servin, is that there's no screening test for pancreatic cancer, despite no, no. you know lots of efforts. We don't have a, a, a screening test like we do for some other cancers like breast and colon. And we'll get into that in a moment. So here we are in November. We're observing Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. Let me just ask this uh, right up front. What's the, what's the big message at this moment that you'd want our listeners to understand about this disease? Yeah, so the first thing is that uh, we are doing better than we ever did in treating pancreatic cancer and that there is hope. It is a tough cancer, a very aggressive cancer, and a lot of people present with late-stage disease. But even for them, there are many more treatment options now than there were even a decade ago. We are uh, we have quadrupled the survival of pancreatic cancer over the last three or four decades, uh, but there's still a lot of room to go. But the key message is hope that with awareness, with understanding our bodies, and with better research and understanding this disease, we are making strides every day. And with combination therapy between lots of different uh, types of cancer doctors, we can get uh, have the potential for excellent outcomes. So when we talk about cancers, oftentimes, for instance, in lung cancer, uh, it, the conversation immediately shifts to, do you smoke? Um, are there environmental risk factors, or maybe I should even ask genetic risk factors that make people more likely to get pancreatic cancer? Yeah, there are, you know, um, the most common, you know, uh, risk factors we think of are advanced age, which unfortunately none of yeah. us can do anything about. Yeah. Uh, but as we get older, we need to have this, you know, think about cancer as a, a thing that's more common. Uh, obesity, uh, which, you know, is a problem all across America, and we are all, you know, are striving to become healthier and, and decrease that. And smoking. Smoking, thankfully, we are making a dent in. Smoking rates are down, uh, but that's a true risk factor for pancreatic cancer. As you suggest, there are familial and genetic uh, pancreatic cancer syndrome. Uh, most people who have pancreatic cancer don't have a family history and don't have a genetic association, but some do. And now we are getting better and better, as we'll talk about, uh, detecting these things and then uh, perhaps doing something about them, screening patients at high risk. So is the biggest lifestyle change for prevention then, is it just better diet or like eliminating obesity and don't smoke? Absolutely. That's uh, for everybody and for 
all kinds of diseases, sure. uh, cessation of smoking or avoiding nicotine products uh, and getting active and decreasing our weight uh, is really the best thing we can do. The single best things, you know, that we can do to help ourselves. We recently just did a show on breast imaging and, and there we talk about screening with mammograms and things of that sort. Um, early detection and for that condition is crucial and it's helped their survival a lot. Is I think you've mentioned this, but I'll I'll ask it super directly. Is there an a screen that people need to be doing for pancreatic cancer, and if not, what are the symptoms that should bring them to see someone like you? Yes, uh, that's the that's the crucial question. So there isn't now, and there probably won't be for a while a test that we can do in the whole population. Everybody should get, you know, this screening test for pancreatic cancer because the disease is rare enough. Uh, any test has to be so, uh, so perfect so that we don't get too many false positives. However, in certain groups, we are able to think about screening and I'm just going to highlight a few of those. We're going to sure. talk about genetics in a minute, but there are two others that I want to point out. One is new onset diabetes. We're realizing over the last you know, decade or so, or a little bit longer, that uh, you know, diabetes is very common. Most people who have new onset diabetes don't have pancreatic cancer, but in certain people where you have new onset diabetes, you have weight loss. Uh, and uh, you know, if we kind of think about that constellation of symptoms for an advanced age, we can identify people who have a higher risk of having pancreatic cancer, and those people we probably should think about how to screen those. Second, there are precancerous lesions in the pancreas, things like cysts yeah. uh, that are uh, we're finding every day now because people get scans for something else, for a kidney stone, or they're in the emergency room with abdominal pain, and we notice a cyst. Uh, 10 times a week, I'm seeing somebody who had a cyst noted incidentally, they're scared to death. Most cysts don't turn into cancer, but some of them can, and we can follow those. And if they start changing, we can remove the area of the pancreas with the cyst uh, to prevent the cancer from forming. So uh, okay. that can help with early detection. We mentioned, and I think you just did about uh, genetics and family history. Let's say that uh, you have a relative that had pancreatic cancer, does that mean that my likelihood of having pancreatic cancer is elevated? What What is the role of genes, if you will, when it comes to this? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a um, topic that we're shedding more and more light on every day, and we have better tests. Uh, so even if you had some kind of testing 10 years ago, everything's changed now. So it's worth thinking about this. So most pancreatic cancer, again, as I said, uh, is not familial, is okay. not hereditary, but enough of a percentage of patients have a syndrome that we think that every patient with pancreatic cancer after diagnosis should get genetic testing. That's for themselves okay. to find out if they have a, a risk factor or gene and for their families to know about their, their risk. The opposite question that you asked is if I have one relative with pancreatic cancer, does that put me at increased risk? Not necessarily, but if there are enough relatives or people with early onset pancreatic cancer, meaning the younger they are when they get pancreatic cancer, the more likely it is hereditary, that's when we think about it. And so if you have questions about that, about your own family history, uh, start with your your primary doctor and then think about you know genetics as a possibility. Again, not to scare people, it's not very common, but there are enough syndromes out there that, and we have good tests now to look for that. So it is worth understanding that it, there is a component uh, of familiar risk. For example, we just got out of Breast Cancer Awareness Month and uh, now we're into Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, but the breast cancer genes, BRCA yeah. genes, can actually lead to pancreatic cancer oh. and other GI cancers as well. And so there's a link there and uh, we want to be able to explore that if you have a strong enough family history. Understood. When when I was in med school, uh, when someone had a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, uh, it, it was at that time uh, in in invariably almost fatal. But you you mentioned a lot of hope uh, now. What how how have treatment options for pancreatic cancer evolved uh, over the years? Uh, which would be with over my multi decade career in medicine and, and yours. How has it evolved? 
Yeah, I, I think treatments are getting better you know, every decade and almost every year we're having new new options and there is hope, as you say. Just to backtrack a little bit, just remember that uh, patients with pancreatic cancer can have a, a myriad of symptoms, but some of the common ones which we need to talk about because it gets into the therapy is they can develop jaundice. Jaundice is yellowing of the eyes and okay. uh, that can be associated with yellow skin, itching, dark urine and light stools. All of that comes together because the uh, tumors in the pancreas block uh, a major duct called the bile duct. And we need to relieve that jaundice as the first step of uh, getting to the bottom of what's going on and, and treating pancreatic cancer. Uh, sometimes people have weight loss and, and other symptoms as well. But once you are diagnosed, Generally, most people, we do something called staging, where we're looking at uh, how extensive the tumor is and whether it has spread. And for most pancreatic cancer patients, we can offer chemotherapy. Okay. Now, everybody thinks of chemotherapy as, as such a horrible thing, and, and certainly it can have side effects. These are, uh, these are drugs that affect the body greatly. However, we can make it very safe, and there are a lot more options now. The chemotherapy agents we use now are light years ahead of what we had a few years ago, and uh, outcomes are better, survival is better, chance for cure is better. Most of the time, chemotherapy is combined with surgery if it's localized disease that hasn't spread to other parts of the body. Surgery involves taking out parts of the pancreas. There are two major operations uh, for pancreatic cancers that are involving the head part, the kind of business end of the pancreas where the ducts come in. Uh, that's a, a operation called a pancreatoduodenectomy or a Whipple procedure, a complex operation where we reroute the GI tract, but can be effective in removing the cancer and keeping it away. For the opposite side of the pancreas, we can take out the back of the pancreas. Uh, so surgery plays a major role. And finally, radiation. Radiation is uh, useful uh, for a lot of pancreatic cancers uh, in combination with surgery and chemotherapy to try to shrink the tumor in the back of the abdomen, either before uh, we do other treatments or afterwards. And the last thing you'll hear about is immunotherapy. This is a, uh, a exciting new field, and there are uh, ways that we can harness the body's own immune system to fight pancreatic cancer. For other tumors, immunotherapy is much more advanced, and there are so many options for pancreatic cancer and, and most GI cancers. We're still in the infancy of uh, exploring these treatments, but they will play a role in the future. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servaneff. You're just joining us. We're talking about Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservan. We talk all about healthcare on this show, uh, Dr. Gusani. Um when does the surgical oncologist enter into the equation? I guess maybe I should frame the question this way. Is that the first person someone sees uh, in the pancreatic cancer journey, or is there a doctor before that? Yeah, great question. Uh, a lot of times an abnormal imaging finding, uh, X-ray, CT, MRI will prompt further evaluation. A lot of times our radiology colleagues and gastroenterology GI colleagues uh, will help us get the diagnosis, figure out what's going on. And then if you're diagnosed or if there's a suspicion, I and other surgeons will often be the first people seeing you. Uh, sometimes it's a uh, another type of oncologist, either a chemotherapy doctor or a medical oncologist, a radiation doctor, and so on. However you touch the system, know that uh, pancreatic cancer is a is kind of a symphony, and and we need. Uh, different treatments at different sure. times. In the old days, even uh, up until a few years ago, we always did surgery first. If you could take the tumor out, you take it out, and then you think about everything else later. Now we're finding that sometimes we get better outcomes if we treat with chemotherapy first. We shrink the tumor, make it move it away from some of the major blood vessels in the back of the abdomen so that we can do a better, safer, less invasive operation. And so, uh, Surgeons are often the first people seeing uh, patients with pancreatic cancer uh, and are certainly key in the in the management, uh, but you need a group that treats this disease a lot and talks about what we should do first, what we should do next, and uh, works together uh, as a team. So that's a, a really critical part of, of this, uh, this discussion. Uh, teams that take care of a lot of pancreatic cancer patients get better outcomes because they're used to it and they have all the, all the options in their toolkit. One of the things that uh, everyone will talk about when it comes to cancer has to do with the emotional and psychological toll that 
any cancer diagnosis takes on the whole family, if you will. Um, can you comment about those resources and support systems available to help patients and their families who are going through pancreatic cancer? Yeah, it is important, uh, as you mentioned, uh, to take note of this. So not only is there the uh, expected impact from such a diagnosis and and the um, the things patients have gone through before they even get the diagnosis, meaning the symptoms and all the testing and so on. But there's also a very strong association between pancreatic cancer and depression. And so it is uh, chemically more likely that you will be depressed if you have pancreatic cancer, uh, you know, that diagnosis. And so really important to recognize and uh, try to treat uh, these aspects of the care, which are so important to getting good care. In terms of resources, there is a lot available. There are uh, advocacy groups and nonprofits who provide uh, free resources for every single uh, pancreatic cancer patient. And I'll just uh, mention one, the sure. Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, okay. which uh, I work with uh, very closely. And, and they offer a whole wealth of resources, not just for emotional and psychological support and not just for families, but also for information and education, for trials, for genetic testing, et cetera, et cetera. So a good resource. But every center will have resources, support groups, and so on. There are, uh, interestingly, a lot of support groups online and, you know, uh, different levels of maturity, but I've actually been lucky enough to be invited into some of those groups. And this is where people talk about their real uh, experiences and emotions. So I learned a lot as a surgeon uh, from talking to my patients in the clinic, but I learn even more by finding out what they're talking about online because uh, that's where they're telling the true stories and, and getting uh, support from uh, like-minded people. And so there's a lot of support out there. Um, you know, uh, our center and others will have resources for you if you reach out to your your oncologist. Um, but get help. There is a lot, uh, a lot to be uh, done and a lot of support out there. Dr. Gusani, in the last moment that we have left, um, I, I want to continue on that theme of hope uh, and inspiration for those who have uh, this diagnosis. What message of hope or inspiration would you like to share with, uh, with our listeners? Uh, you, you deal with this daily. What do you want to tell the folks out there that may have just gotten the diagnosis or in the throes of one? Yeah, I will tell you that uh, there is hope and there is a lot. Uh, there are a lot of options and a lot of things we can do at, as I said, at every stage of the disease, whether it's uh, treatment or palliative care, nutrition, uh, supportive care, and so on and so forth. Just listen to your body, listen to the symptoms and mention those to trusted uh, caregivers, family members, et cetera, your team, and then mention them to your, your trusted, uh, uh, caregivers, the uh, care team, the, the physicians and the oncologists and so on, so that we can address them. We, we want to be able to, we, we can't treat what we don't know about. So share your story, understand, you know, listen to your body and then partner with the team. Uh, that's the best way to sort of maintain hope and to understand that it is a long road. There are, uh, difficulties ahead, but there's uh, at every step of the way, there's newer and newer treatment options, less invasive surgery, uh, better radiation, uh, better chemotherapy and targeted therapies. So we are making a dent in this disease. We need to stay focused uh, and we need to raise awareness uh, so that we get research uh, funding and so on to, to continue making even more of an impact. Dr. Gusani, thank you so very much for joining us. This has been just really incredibly helpful. I've learned so much and you've also given us a lot of hope. We just really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure. And uh, I love your podcast and uh, I love um, getting these messages out to everybody. So uh, please uh, would love to come back. Thank you so much. And we will definitely have you back. We've been talking to Dr. Niraj Gusani. He is chief of surgical oncology at Baptist MD Anderson here in Jacksonville. We've been talking about Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. And up next, November is also Alzheimer's Awareness Month. Dr. Christian Lochner joins to talk more about Alzheimer's.
Welcome back. This is what's health got to do with it. I'm Dr. Joe Servin. November is a very busy month for disease awareness. November is also Alzheimer's Awareness Month, a disease making headlines monthly. In recognition of November's Alzheimer's Awareness Month, we have a distinguished guest with us today, a prominent psychiatrist who is at the forefront of Alzheimer's research. Notably, our guest has recently received an NIH grant which promises to revolutionize brain health initiatives in Black and Hispanic communities. He visits our show to help us better understand Alzheimer's disease, address disparities, and uncovers innovative solutions to promote brain health in underserved populations. Joining us now in studio is Dr. Christian Lochner. He's a neuropsychiatrist and a geriatric psychiatrist at Mayo Clinic here in Jacksonville, Florida. Dr. Lochner, welcome to our program. Well, thank you so much for having me here in such an important um, month as you raised uh, awareness um, for many conditions, but especially now focusing on Alzheimer's disease. We've covered this condition a lot on the show because it just it's just so common. But just for the sake of our listeners, or maybe someone who's new, provide an overview, if you can, of Alzheimer's disease. Sure. So um, first of all, uh, Alzheimer's disease is a brain disease. And it's a brain disease in which there are two main proteins, one called amyloid, the other one called tau, that deposit in the brain. And they cause damage to brain cells called neurons. And once this happens, uh, the brain tends to shrink. So it's one of these conditions we call neurodegenerative conditions. And when the brain uh, fails to, neurons fail to communicate uh, within each other and in different areas, it causes specific symptoms. And most notably, uh, people are familiar with Alzheimer's disease causing memory problems. So that's one of the easiest uh, or most recognized symptoms that, that we deal with. But there's a whole plethora of other uh, symptoms, many, many other symptoms that can happen as well, because it attacks the brain, which is the organ that helps us communicate with each other, think, experience life, and relate with one another. So there's many other um, symptoms that may appear, especially in what we call cognition, which is our abilities to think and process information and memory. You know, your work has been very instrumental in advocating for Alzheimer's research in Black and Hispanic communities, uh, underserved communities, if you will. Can you share with us what are some of the challenges or disparities that these communities face that perhaps is different than uh, a white Caucasian community? So um, this is a very important issue because um, we generally would think that a disease would affect everybody, you know, sort of in the same way. Uh, but we clearly know that uh, Alzheimer's disease does not affect people in the same way. And when we're talking about what we call underrepresented communities, such as Hispanics or African Americans, we know that they experience Alzheimer's disease in much higher uh, numbers than a non-Hispanic white um people would, would experience it. For example, uh, we know that uh, black people have twice the risk of Alzheimer's really? disease. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hispanics have a 1.5 times huh. the risk of Alzheimer's disease. So they're, they're affected in, in, in more numbers. And we don't understand very well why this might be the case. And I think that's why, um, you know, these efforts to understand that better is important because people may think, well, maybe it's genetics, but genetics don't explain the whole picture. Right. We also think that um, these underserved communities um, lack other things that other communities may have. Uh, for example, access to health care, uh, access to education, other resources. And um, these are what we call um, determinants of health or standard determinants of health. And we think those play a critical role in how illnesses may affect uh, certain communities or not. Congratulations. I understand you got a new NIH grant, as I mentioned in the introduction. Um, what are the, the big things that you're hoping to accomplish? I know these things take a lot of time, a lot of years, 
But what what are the big key things that you hope will come out of this that helps improve brain health in these groups? Mm -hmm. So that's a a very important uh, point, and we're very excited. Uh, So a grant is is something that allows us to be able to carry out research and understand questions such as these, and it's always a team effort. So I want to recognize, you know, I'm representing a team here. It's not myself. And um, what we're trying to accomplish with this grant is um, several things. So first... We're going to try to improve our relationship with the community because before we start trying to understand scientific questions, we need to understand our community. So in this case, we're going to be focusing on these underrepresented communities, African-Americans and Hispanics. So we're going to be meeting and developing this relationship and communication, and we're going to be learning from them. Um, And things we're going to be learning are what is important to the community in terms of their health? How much do they know about specific diseases? Um, how much um, do they have uh, in terms of, of barriers to participate in research or, or things that alienate them from participating in research? We're also going to understand these determinants of health we were talking about. So trying to see, you know, uh, what is it that gets in the way of people having better health? Do they have access to a primary care doctor? Do they have um, nutrition that uh, can be healthy enough that it decreases the risk of certain diseases? Can they recognize certain illnesses? Do they take their medications? Can they regulate, you know, uh, the their blood pressures or or take medications their doctors have prescribed to keep them as healthy as possible. Uh, We also want to understand of maybe potential exposures they have, such as Mm. pollution or um, all these factors that sometimes we as doctors don't take as much into account uh, because we're seeing the patient for a very short visit. So once we have that, the next phase of the study would be to um, then have people who want to volunteer for participation, and we're going to explore the genetics, the medical conditions, these other factors, the determinants of health, and try to see how those can explain the burden of this Alzheimer's disease in the brain. So it's a relationship. The other thing that's very special about this study is that we want to give back to the community. And okay. part of how we're giving back is in terms of education about this condition, but also the participants in the research are going to receive a brain health report oh. with modifiable factors. So that's very important because they can do something about the illness before hopefully the illness um begins to try to modify their health in terms of their brain and cognition. Let me kind of latch on to that. Um, Do we know what some of those, uh, one of the biggest questions that we all get, I think, is how do you prevent this? And so I guess the question is, what are some of the possible modifiable factors, those things that you can do to prevent this? Because I think that's the question everyone always has. Sure. And and it's an important one. And I think um, we have been learning more about this. And there has actually, there have been some studies to suggest that 40% of this risk of dementia may be modifiable. So it's a very substantial um, part of this risk. And if we start uh, even in early childhood, what can we do? Uh, Well, we can make sure that our children have education, that they have access to education, because education can build brain resilience and connections, and that can also lower the risk of somebody later on in late life having uh, an illness such as Alzheimer's disease. Other factors um, may include, as we mentioned, nutrition. So usually um, diets that are low in fats, diets that are high in fruits and uh, salads, legumes, all of these, um, and limit, for example, red meats or fried foods. Um, Also, diets that incorporate uh, fish or olive oil are better. And and this is all the ideal. I understand it because for a lot of us, you know, we don't eat this on a regular basis, but this should be our goal. What can we modify to improve our nutrition and try to um, you know, mimic this this type of diet. Other things that um, are important, for example, are brain trauma, so head okay. trauma. So if we're riding our bicycles or going on our skateboards, making sure we wear a helmet, because later on that can also protect us. And then um, as we become adults or so, what we call the vascular risk factors become very important. So, for example, making sure our blood pressure is under control, 
that we're not smoking, that our um, blood sugar is under control, people who have diabetes, making sure it's very well controlled with medications and what their doctors are prescribing. Um, also, people who have sleep apnea, for example, very important that they wear their mask to try to cut down on this risk. And um, later on, as we continue aging, also it's very important to treat, for example, depression, okay. uh, social isolation, uh, maintaining uh, the person engaged with their environment, uh, hopefully learning something new or, or having meaningful relationships and connections because people who become isolated can also uh, develop depression and also withdraw in many ways, and that affects the brain and, and functioning. Hearing loss is another one that sometimes, you know, treating hearing loss can, can be a... It can improve cognition and, and decrease the, the risk of, of dementias later on. And, and one thing, I was just going to mention a difference because a lot of people always think of Alzheimer's disease and dementia as the same thing. Right. And they're very different things. So even though Alzheimer's disease causes the most common type of dementia, dementia is just an umbrella term. Okay. It's just like saying somebody has fever, okay. um, but it doesn't tell us what's causing it. So one of the, the causes of dementia, two-thirds of people or more have, it's Alzheimer's disease. And dementia just means thinking and memory problems that affect everyday life. I, w I want to I kind of follow up a little bit. Um, you know, we are in November, and I can assure you, um, as we look into Thanksgiving holiday, I know I will be asked by at least two family members, I'm not going to name their names, but they're going to ask me, what are the, do I have it, uh, what are the warning signs? And so I, I'll ask, I come from a large Cuban family, so we're in this Hispanic umbrella here. What are those things that people should look out for that says, this is not just okay aging. I I may have something mm -hmm. else. So that's a great point you bring up because um, a lot of times people confuse a disease with normal aging. And they think because the person is old or aging that it's normal for them to forget things and, and um, for example, interfere again with the way they're, they're uh, functioning in everyday life. So... Typically, and I say typically because there's a lot of variation, but typically Alzheimer's disease begins with memory loss. Okay. So it's forgetfulness. So sometimes um, a person would come in and say, um, you know, they're, they're forgetting to pay their bills on time. They're forgetting recent conversations or even recent events that they saw on the news or something happened and they cannot recollect the details of that. Um, sometimes also they tend to ask questions repeatedly. So they get an answer and they forget the answer and go back five minutes later and ask their loved one for the same question or repeat themselves or misplace things. Other uh, very common symptoms are sometimes word-finding difficulties. And even though with aging this is very common, usually people will just take a little longer and then remember the word they want to say. In Alzheimer's disease, uh, this happens more frequently and it becomes a pattern and people have difficulty expressing themselves. Um, sometimes also they don't have the same ability to process information or understand and then they're decision-making abilities or their judgment uh, becomes also uh, impaired. So those are some of the most common symptoms to look out for. One of the things that also is a big issue is that it seems like it's a stigmatized condition uh, in, in some ways. It's Alzheimer's Awareness Month. How do we reduce that stigma or how do we raise the right awareness about this? Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, efforts such as this program, I think, are very, very important. And um, I thank you for this opportunity and also um, having the Awareness Month right now because creating awareness is not just knowing something is there. I think it's understanding it better. And I, I really believe in education and I think uh, we should even start at a younger age. I think people in high school should have a, a lot of these awareness uh, programs or so to understand their health better. So educating people that uh, sometimes, again, normal aging is different than having a disease in the brain. 
I think that having the early signs and recognition of what the illness is is important. And this is, a, again, a very important disease. It's within the top 10 um, causes of, of death in the United States and around the world and, and very common type of dementia. So I, I think that... Um, going to your doctor if you have questions, going online. The Alzheimer's Disease Association is a fabulous association. They have chapters locally, sure. but also have a website. And and the website is alz.org. So alz.org. And there's a lot of resources in English and Spanish for people. So I think that would be also something that's very um, important. And um, the other thing is, Noticing if there's a change in a person you care about or you know. Because right. sometimes, uh, you know, family members, even though they're noticing that there's a change, they try to minimize it. Uh, and again, coming back to this issue about the stigma. And I think there should not be stigma because, you know, we're, we're all getting ill at some point. Uh, we're not going to live sure. forever. Sure. So learning to be humble enough and also learning to be um, passionate enough to, to help people that we can help out. Uh, sometimes pointing out these things is, is not a, a bad thing. It's having somebody uh, being able to go out and look for care if needed. So all of these things are, I think, important. One of the things that is different about this uh, time that we're talking about this, this particular month, November 2023, is that we actually have new treatments and new tests that are actually out that have not been approved. There's blood tests. There is imaging. There are now, uh, I believe, two uh, drugs approved. Can you shed some light about kind of these? I mean, that's huge. It, it is, actually. I, I think there's there's been a, a lot of, of research efforts around the world. And this is also one thing that I think it's in a way, beautiful about Alzheimer's disease, how it brings the scientific community from all around the world trying to help people with this uh, disease. And over the years, I think there's been many lessons we've learned. So, for example, we've learned about, um, you know, the, the fact that we can now diagnose Alzheimer's disease when the patient is still alive. In the past, we would see some symptoms, think this may be Alzheimer's disease, and then until the person died, we would look at the brain and say, well, this is Alzheimer's disease or not. Now, as you were um, pointing out, there are what we call biomarkers, right. which are uh, ways of measuring the disease while the person is alive. And some of these biomarkers, we can actually see um, in imaging studies these proteins that accumulate uh, in the brain with specialized techniques called PET scans. We can see both amyloid and tau. And nowadays also the science has um, moved to more accessible means of measuring this with blood tests. And I don't think the blood tests are 100% ready, but they're very good. And I think in, in the next few years or months, uh, they're going to be very accurate. Um, but right now, I, I still think there's some work to be done. The other thing is, as we talked about, we know Alzheimer's disease with these new mar markers. By the time we make a diagnosis, the illness has probably been building up for 15, 20 years. A lot of time. Yeah. So within that time frame, it gives us an opportunity to modify these risk factors we talked about in trying to improve the cognitive trajectories. And then um, over the last maybe 20, 30 years, we've had some medications that help with the symptoms of the disease. But nowadays, as you said, there are two medications that are FDA approved for um, the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. And these are what we call monoclonal antibodies, a fancy name just to mean sure. there's some uh, proteins in the brain that try to... Um, that, that, as we know, are misfolded and depositing. So these medications target those proteins and, and clean the brain from what they have. And uh, it's, it's very exciting. It's a new field. Um, there are two right now, and I think a third one that will be approved uh, either this year or earlier next year as well. But these are infusions. So people, it's not a medicine you take by IV. mouth. Exactly. You have to get an IV place, go to a hospital, usually like every two weeks or every month, and get the treatment. But it's very encouraging because for the first time since this disease was described, by the way, the person who described it was Dr. Alzheimer's um, after he saw a patient who had these symptoms we're talking about. But um, 
a hundred plus years after that happened, we're now to the point where we can actually provide treatment that can change the disease itself. And that's very important because um, before that, it was just treating the symptoms. Got it. Alzheimer's is so devastating uh, to caregivers and even to the person when they hear that word. Uh, it, it's just, it, it, it's almost become like the sea of cancer almost. What strategies, and, and, and you know, as a neuropsychiatrist, as a geriatric psychiatrist, what strategies can people use to maintain a positive outlook and emotional well-being when you're facing this? Mm-hmm. This is, I think, uh, you know, key into not only helping somebody else, but into our own humanity. Because taking care of somebody else takes a lot from a person. And the majority of studies show that it's usually women and it's usually family or friends. So it's unpaid work um, and it's a 24-7 job pretty much. So I think the first thing is recognizing these unsung heroes, which are caregivers, and because they deserve a lot of credit for the tremendous work that they do. And usually they do it out of love and compassion for other um, people that, that they um, you know, care about. At the same time, I would say they are not alone, even though at times it feels like it. Um, they should not feel alone. So reach out for help. Um, as I mentioned, the uh, Alzheimer's disease website also has resources for caregivers. Sometimes there's networks as well. Uh, there's support groups, and all of that can be very important. Um, the other thing is knowing that this is a difficult task. Um, yeah. So, Because sometimes people feel bad if they get upset or angry or frustrated with things that are going on. This is normal. So these are normal emotions you may experience when you're taking care of somebody else, and it's a very demanding but job. But but also, interestingly, there's some studies that suggest that about 45 or 50 percent of caregivers, they feel very good about what they're doing. It's, it's very rewarding. So I think also turning that around, how to make something rewarding, um, how to have purpose for what we're doing, it's important. And the other thing is, do not neglect your basic health either. Because sometimes people who are taking care of another person, um, you know, they can't sleep very well or they don't exercise or they're not taking care of their own medical problems or might not go to the doctor. So that's also a priority. So um, for caregivers, they need to be in good shape to help somebody else. So you have to take care of your own uh problems and health first. So again, exercising, trying to sleep, uh, trying to have a neighbor, another friend uh, look after the person so you can have a little time off. Sure. Uh, that's important, keeping the joy in your life. Um, and for maybe 30 or sometimes 50% of these caregivers sometimes develop depression and anxiety, which is not just you know the, the normal emotion. It's when these um, conditions last for weeks or months where the person feels down or very tense and anxious and, and concerned. So um, talk to your doctor because you could be experiencing anxiety or depression and sometimes treating those conditions can also help. So there, there's many strategies. I appreciate that. I In our, in our final moments, um, I, I want to offer a kernel of hope, a nugget, if you will, uh, or encouragement that you'd like to share with our listeners, particularly those who may be personally affected by Alzheimer's, either as someone with it or a caregiver, as you mentioned. And what, what would you say to them? So the first thing I would say is uh, we can never lose hope because hope is what keeps us afloat as a person and as a, as a society. So it's very important. The other thing is there's going to be difficulties in life, no matter what we do. And having, you know, go through going through adversity with a purpose, it's very important. Um, if you are a patient experiencing Alzheimer's disease, well, there's, there's different severities, of course, of the illness. But initially, I, I also tell the person, you know, this is the same brain that helped you be who you are. So the fact that you're uh, having an illness right now, it, it doesn't make you a different person. 
So that's where you need more empathy. That's where you need to recruit hope. And that's where you need to um, find purpose in your life. And actually, I've had many patients that actually teach me a great example on how to turn things around. And they find this um, very um, impressive gratefulness about things they've had in your life. The other thing is, again, don't feel lonely. Reach out. Because somehow we also cope better with things when we're not by ourselves. So reach out to family, reach out to your community, reach out to this network of, of uh, the Alzheimer's uh, Association or otherwise in, in community centers. Very, very important. And in terms of overall scientific hope, um, well, look where we are. Yeah. Right now, we're starting yeah. to treat this disease. Um, so even though these might be the first efforts, uh, we think this is going to just create uh, more and more treatments down the road and earlier diagnoses. And I really think that maybe in the future, we're going to get to a point where treating Alzheimer's disease hopefully would be like we treat, you know, uh, for example, before a heart attack develops, we treat people with cholesterol sure. medication. So if we can make a diagnosis like that, a blood test, and we start treating this disease before it attacks the brain to the point where it's causing major problems, um, that would be outstanding. And I think uh, we, we, got, we have to stay optimistic, but we have to make it happen as well. And that's where we can partner in terms of the scientific community and the community itself um, to build a, a better future and better health. I love that message, and I'm going to let that be our final word. Dr. Lochner, thank you so much for the work you're doing. Thank you for joining us today and sharing this terrific advice. And we hope we can bring you back as the grant is underway and we hear more about it. Well, thank you so much. This has been an incredible experience, and, and thank you, um, everybody who's out uh, listening to us. Um, and I'd be delighted to come back. So thank you so much. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckett. Stacey Bennett is our producer. Brady Corum is our director. Next week's program is a conversation with actor Greg Grumberg about epilepsy awareness and a dietitian about Thanksgiving nutritional advice. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening. And stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com. The American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. And Rethreaded restores choice and breaks the cycle of generational trauma for survivors of human trafficking in Jacksonville, Florida, through business. You can help. Learn more about Rethreaded survivor-created goods at the storefront or rethreaded.com shop.